Hey everyone, it's Rick Fox here to remind you that the spring's premiere in SureTech Conference Accelerate, powered by NetView, is just around the corner. One of the highlights of the event each year is the NetView Day of Caring, and this year it's benefiting a Minneapolis-based charity who helps people struggling with poverty, homelessness, unemployment, addiction, and so many other life issues. We need your help, and you don't even have to be a NetView member or attending the conference to pitch in. Go to www.netviewaccelerate.com and click on the Day of Caring page to donate money for supplies or sign up to volunteer. Thank you. Welcome to the Vertifor Insurance Podcast with Rick Fox. We're here to talk about the industry with some of its biggest influencers. From technology, trends, and current events, if it's happening in insurance, you'll hear about it here. Make sure to tune in every week and join in on the conversation with us on social media at Vertifor. And now, here's Rick Fox. Welcome back to another episode of the VIP, the Vertifor Insurance Podcast. This is the host, Rick Fox, and uh, January has come and gone. We're now deeper into the year and deeper into our thoughts as we bring on somebody that I'm really excited to talk to because... This person is from the psychological aspect of insurance and is going to give us some insight into not only the way people are thinking, but the way we need to change our thinking and our behaviors around that. So uh, I, I do want to introduce her. Her name is Dorothy Andrews. She is Principal and Chief Behavioral Data Scientist at Actuarial and Analytics Consortium. And we are extremely glad to have her. Dorothy, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. <laughs> and what I'll do now is I'm going to turn it over to you. And we just love to hear your story. Like, tell us how you ended up in that really long title that I just gave for you uh, in this insurance space that, we, uh, that so many of us hold so dear to our hearts. Tell us how you got here. Okay, so um, I studied mathematics as an undergraduate, and you know I was getting my first master's degree in uh, mathematics and education, and I thought teaching was going to be kind of my career. Uh, you know, I taught high school for one year, and um, you know then I realized that um, you know I had to leave that high-paying job and go back to school. <laughs> to get a degree in uh, mathematical statistics because at the time I was studying educational psychology and statistics. And what's really good about educational um, psychologists uh, is that, you know, they really understand the application of psychology and they know how to use statistics to measure behavior. The problem I had, of course, is when I started asking questions about how they derived all these formulas and they couldn't answer those questions. So I went back to graduate school and um, I went to Boston University and got a degree in mathematical statistics. And that answered a lot of my questions. During the process, um, I happened to learn of the actuarial profession. And um, I started, you know, taking some classes through the uh, Boston Actuaries Club. And uh, one night, one of the professors, uh, one of the teachers in the program, uh, asked me if I wanted to come work for John Hancock. And so, wow. you know, I said, okay, because it was a numerical analysis class and I was really good in numerical analysis and I was the only one answering all the questions. So 
he approached me <laughs> about interviewing with John Hancock. And uh, that was my first job in the actuarial field. And so I spent, you know, seven years um, at John Hancock and, you know, rotating throughout the company, investment policy and research, corporate actuarial, retail annuities, um, corporate finance, and, you know, wow. had a really good uh, career, um, you know, learning about insurance through the actuarial rotation program. Um, but it was a, a fairly non-traditional uh, path, um, you know, not a lot of traditional pricing or evaluation in my rotations because most people where I, I, uh, where I rotated wanted me to, you know, apply my statistics and right. I had really strong programming skills and, you know, they thought they could leverage uh, those as well in, in building models. So I eventually went into consulting because consulting is one way to get a lot of experience really quickly. And, you know, I spent about um, eight, nine years in consulting. Hold on, hold on for, a second, Dorothy. Did you, did you do the statistics and the, the benefit of doing that while you were in the process of changing to that? Because if you seem like the kind of person that would have spent a lot of uh, time making sure that was the right move as you made that next switch. I mean, going, uh, studying, um, no, when you went and decided to be a consultant, I, I assume you went into oh. like pros and cons. And I mean, I'm, I'm hearing you talk and I'm thinking, wow, this person has really dialed it into figuring out the best yeah. path. And so I'm, I'm guessing that was a process for you, right? Yeah, it was a process because, you know, when you're a company, um, actuary or a company employee for that matter, you, you really are. There's really only one culture that you tend to uh, understand, and that's the company culture that you're in. But when you're in um, a consulting role, you get to you get a peek inside uh, many uh, cultures at many different companies, but not just the culture, but also their way of doing things. So you know, two companies could be required to calculate the same kind of reserve, but their calculations are nuanced um, that in such a way that you learn something different um, mm. about, you know, the way the company functions. And mm. not only that, it also gives you kind of, it helps build your expert title because people like to understand what other people are in the in industry are doing. That's a, a, a question consultants are often asked, what, how do other people handle this right. problem? And so having, you know, that broad experience of, different approaches to the same problems um, really makes you a very valuable consultant. Well, and that's such a, such, that's such a correlation to the way our insurance agencies at the, uh, that we deal with or that I'm talking to every day, they're doing the exact same thing. They're, they want to hear how other people are doing it. You know, I, I don't want to get stuck in the, you know, the catchphrase best practices, but you know, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're just doing it a little different way with a little different culture or a different, different spin. So for you to be out there consulting, uh, you know, you're, you're learning so much, so many different variations to build your own decision-making. That's, that's really awesome. I mean, I, I think that's a, I've always said the consultants are the, that's the best on the job you can get because it's never, it's never dull and it's always different. Yes, that's, that's very true. Yeah, unfortunately, I was living in New England at the time, and um, those winters were really rough. So <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I decided that, um, you know, there was an, a one winter where I had just finished shoveling my driveway. And then right after this, that, that this whole sheet of snow fell off my roof oh, gosh. and I had to start all over again. So I was not pretty happy about that. So now um, Charlotte, so North I, Carolina, where that's not quite an issue, right? No, that's not an issue at all. In fact, <laughs> my first year, the first year I lived here, I can remember, um, I, we had a snow day and there was like less than an inch of snow on the ground. <laughs> Um, they were escorting people out the building to go home. Well, it didn't take me long to realize that it wasn't my driving skills I had to be concerned about because, you know, I was from New England. So, right, you know, I right. know, I know harsh winters. It was really the other people, you know, native to North Carolina that I had to be concerned about <laughs> because they weren't used to driving in that kind of weather. I mean, you know, a, a light rain could create a 15 car pileup. Well, you know, uh, and so, Dorothy, I'm in Southern California down here in San Diego, and that is exactly the same thing. I was, I was talking to a police officer. I didn't get pulled over. It was at a Starbucks and it was raining outside. And I said, man, this must make your, your days crazy when it rains, because for some reason, people in Southern California think they should drive faster when it rains. Exactly. And, and he exactly. said, this, this guy said, on an average day in San Diego County, there's 80-something collisions. Could be you know, minimal, just little things all the way up to severe accidents. And when it rains in San Diego, that number goes up over 300 in one day. And wow. I was just yeah. like, slow down, everybody. Anyway, I don't want to get us too far off point. So I want to just – let me just do a quick um, – well, actually, let me let you finish. So, so how did we get to where we are now? So take me, take me the rest of the journey. Yeah. So I, I, I'm so excited to ask you the questions, but I don't want to jump ahead. So I, I, I came to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was doing a lot of work in reinsurance study in, in the risk management department. And that involved a lot of data processing and analyzing data from different companies because, you know, reinsurers, you know, they have lots of data from other companies. And, you know, from there, I went from uh, risk management um, for, for Transamerica Reinsurance to working in the credit risk department at Wachovia. And that's where I had an opportunity to really fall back in love with statistics because I was building predictive models uh, for the bank. And, um, from that, from really from that point on, I tried to stay really close to uh, building uh, predictive models. I did a little work in life settlements, uh, which is you know a really interesting industry. But uh, at that time, you know that's when Wachovia uh, went under, and right. you know it, it was a it was a tough environment um, to be working. And uh, in, in life settlements, if you were trying to securitize insurance policies, uh, which is what our company was trying to do. But um, you know, I I I stuck to um, building statistical models. I, I ran a predictive analytics shop at Harleysville Insurance. I was a statistician for the USDA. Wow. Um, and. You know, from from there, it was pretty clear that, um, you know, the use of models, because of my work working in uh, Harleysville, which is actually a property and casualty 
mm-hmm. uh, insurance company. Yep. Most of the model buildings I did was in PNC, not even life. But the, the PNC folks, they were way ahead of where the life and health folks were in terms of building predictive models. And now what you're seeing is uh, life insurance companies, health insurance companies, they've all jumped on the bandwagon mm-hmm. um, of using predictive models because more traditional, uh, traditional approaches involve a lot of uh, assumption setting that's not really that transparent, um, a lot of judgment, and it's often hard to really you know, track how someone arrived at a particular result. And especially when you look across companies trying to solve the same problem, um, you know, sometimes you would see differences that just were counterintuitive. Right. So um, studying um, and doing building predictive models is kind of what led me uh, to, um, to think more about how technology is influencing how people uh, interact with each other. And because, you know, some insurance companies, they understand a lot about uh, behavioral modeling in terms of behavioral economics. But, you know, like in my editorial, um, I talk about how, uh, you know, decision-making is often more um, emotional than it is rational. Oh, yeah, for sure. those emotional is those those emotional drivers are often missed in uh, predictive models. And we also don't often understand how some of the data uh, can be influenced by uh, uh, or influence how people um, think about different things. So, you know, there it is definitely important to think more about how you're collecting data and how if you can apply psychology the whole process, you can actually improve the quality of the data that you're collecting. Um, I have this saying that if you want better data, you need to influence better behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's, I that. where I think, I, that's where I think, um, you know, people are now starting to look at, look, you know, how can I improve behavior so that I get, get data that is more credible than, you know, what you typically see on an application uh, that, you know, sometimes people, these applications, they filled out so they can get the best insurance rate. And, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to select against the insurer. But um, I think we can design better systems because now we're starting to communicate with people through mobile devices. I mean, that, that Netflix series, Black Mirror, yeah. is yep. really starting to... Um, look more like real life for us. All and right, we'll so, get there. Don't and- don't don't steal all the thunder of the questions I want to ask. So so now so now t- talk tell me about Prince. Tell me about what you do right now at Actuarial and Analytics Consortium. Talk just give me that and then but make it quick because you're 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 teasing okay. me here and I want to get I want to get to the nuts and bolts of this thing. <laughs> so I I'm I'm very much what I like to think of as a regulatory actuary. I'm very much a pro-consumer. Um, my the chief actuary at John Hancock, I admired him a great deal. He eventually became my mentor. And one thing about him that impressed me was whenever he was asked who he worked for, his answer was always the policyholder. And so um, 
you know, I, that's the way I've always kind of managed my career to be mindful of how what we're doing impacts real people. Um, because, you know, they spend their hard-earned dollars to buy these insurance policies and keep them in force. Um, I think, you know, they certainly deserve, you know, their investments to be respected. So, um, you know, so basically, I, I think I think about um, uh, how these, these products impact real people, how the data collection can be biased, um, how the models may be biased. You've probably heard of the um, uh, health algorithm written by Optum that mm -hmm. um, you know, biased uh, uh, towards African-Americans. Um, you know, it's, it's these, thinking about the impact of these models on real people, I think makes you a lot more conscious and um, conscientious about how you're handling the data and looking at the data from several uh, viewpoints. And really it becomes down to also having a, div a diverse view of your population to make sure to, to understand whether or not these models you're building are producing results that make any sense, which is kind of the problem with the optimum model. So well, um, that's, that's how I got here. I love it. And, and what I was going to say is, you know, we, we have uh, lots of listeners. And by the way, everybody out there, if you haven't already subscribed, make sure to push the subscribe button, give us a rating, follow me on LinkedIn, and you'll always get the updates of when these, uh, when, these, when these podcasts are coming out, as well as being on our subscription list, which we really appreciate. Great listenership in 2019 and looking to be just so much bigger in 2020. But something that you mentioned before, and I want to comment on, is you said that, that the person that you admired at John Hancock's always said, I work for the customer. We have people in every, in, in every part of the industry here, from the carrier level uh, we have a ton of PNC people that listen to the podcast, obviously LNH people as well. And the great thing about like just specific to any of those folks that are out there working with consumers is as long as you stay in that mindset that you mentioned, Dorothy, that you work for your customers, uh, that's, that's, that's the starting point to good, right? I mean, that's the starting point to heading in the right direction. So, all right, let me shift gears. Um, First, I just want to say this, like, like I'm looking at your LinkedIn thing and I, if I wasn't already intimidated, I mean, this, this extraordinary woman has a bachelor's degree from Albany, at the, one of the SUNY schools, University of Albany. She has a master's, uh, an MA master's in mathematics and education from there. She has a master's from, from Boston University. And now, if I'm reading this right, doctor of philosophy, so do I have to start calling you Dr. Dorothy? I mean, do I have to say that now? Is that how I have to address you from this point on? Uh, well, not during this podcast for sure, because I'm not done yet. I'm still... You're working on it. <laughs> I'm still working on it. Okay. I'm entering my third year, so I'm, I'm hoping. Yeah. You are a glutton for punishment. I mean, that is a lot of schooling. I, I took psych as a minor at University of Washington in my undergrad, and I thought it was really awesome, but I didn't go to do all I mean this is it's impressive so and it's so impressive that now she's becoming somebody that that is is writing for publications and and she has a current editorial or current in that it's the December January issue of the actuary magazine where she does an editorial called insurance psychology 101 
You can find the link in this podcast, uh, the words to this podcast, because it's a really good read. And I want to I want to give her credit for that because she's she's taken the time and the energy to to uh, to really understand how to tie, you know, because you don't always think about psychology when you think about stats. You think about uh, numbers or averages or means or medians, and she's taken that and put those two things together in a way that I really think is important. So I want to get to kind of the nuts and bolts and the questions. So I think in general, what, what we want, what I want to get people to listen to you talk about, Dorothy, uh, is this: how do we satisfy the basic psychological needs of how we position insurance products? And, and I, I want to break that down like in these questions. First question, how do we improve how we engage with the consumer? That's a big thing right now. Millennials are a big deal. You wrote about that in your editorial. But how do we improve how we engage from our industry with the consumer? Well, you know, I, I think it's like with any generation um, that you want to connect with, you, you really have to meet people where they are. And right now, this younger generation, you know, they're, they're mobile savvy. Yep. Uh, they're really self-focused. So they're demanding individualization or personalized insurance, as some call it. Uh, they don't want to be in this big pool where insurance is based on an expected loss basis. And, you know, they're subsidizing losses from other people. And they, they really want to be related to on their terms. So uh, self-determination theory talks about three basic psychological needs. And one is autonomy, the other one is competence, and the third one is relatedness. So we need to focus on enabling people so that they can understand and navigate through these products. And if we focus on that and, and, by, and make them competent and do it in such a way that uh, we're relating to them on their level and the way they like to be communicated with, um, I think uh, you know that's that's a first step in in, in getting uh, to know uh, to know anyone. And right. you know, I was I was I just wrote a paper uh, that talked about um, you know like why Hillary lost the election, and one of my feelings was that she really he really didn't. Uh, fulfill one of the most important ingredients of a successful relationship. In some states, she just didn't show up. She didn't yeah. spend time showing up, showing I mean, up. Yeah, that's really important. Um, so you know, and like in my editorial, I say you know, insurance companies need to start building early bonds with their consumers with consumers before they're maybe even eligible to buy insurance. Right. You know, work yep. work with them, make them more financially literate, make them understand the importance of having, you know, these products, um, and make sure that uh, these products address their needs and um, and can actually ensure that uh, you know they will uh, help assist them through through retirement. Um, so if they, I think if they partner up with insurance, and I think financial literacy is indeed. Uh, one of the uh, easiest ways for companies to partner up. Uh, I was at a, uh, a MetLife um, uh, in a, in a in, InsureTech event uh, last year, 
where they had partnered with Techstars and they had all these different insure techs on display. And one of the insure techs created this app called, um, I think it's Zogo. Um, but anyway, it's a, it, it's, those guys are Generation Z. They're Gen Zs and they created financial literacy, a financial literacy app for their fellow Gen Z uh, um, population. And one of the things that struck me about what they did was they said no one was really teaching them financial literacy in a way that they could relate to it. Um, and, you know, so I think that's really important. And, and that, that is one of the key, key um, aspects of self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you can satisfy these three basic needs, then, then you can ensure, you know, a sense of well-being and a person will flourish. So I think, you know, we need to go back to thinking about, you know, how people develop, um, how they come to understand things and, you know, uh, reach them, you know, in a way that uh, they can relate to. Um, yeah, I think that's the, the most important thing. Well, what I've always said, and just that, like, like you're obviously, as we went down that four minute uh, ex explanation of all the schools you've gone to, you've been, you're much smarter than I am, but the simple answer to that and what it, people who have listened to this podcast before have heard me say is to your point of meeting them where they want to be met in your business, in your insurance world. If you get an email from someone, don't call them back, email them back. They emailed you. The, the, the expectation is an email back. If they call you, don't send them an email. Start meeting people because there's so many different ways to communicate. Is that a text? Is it a call? Is it an email? Are they, are they active on your Facebook page and, and sent you a direct message or Instagram? I mean, there's so many ways. My kids don't even text anymore. They just Snapchat everybody. Uh, and, but to your point, like my, my, I have teenagers and they're the next generation of people up that need to buy these products. And to your point about the literacy, my, my kids have no idea. I do the best I can, but so far failing at understanding what, what, what financial responsibility is and those kind of things. So it, you make a really good point that that's, it needs to be addressed. It could be as simple as what I just said, which is meeting them where they are and, and doing that in a communication style and is as complex or as, as mindful as just being, having that in your mind that I need to be aware of how I communicate, of how I act, of how I make decisions based on that. Okay, next question. Uh, and this is a, this is a, I don't get too deep because you're going to lose me on this one, but, but how do we improve the algorithms on the back end of this, of this interaction of that, of what we're talking about? Well, I alluded to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really about diversity. I mean, uh, you know, as a media psychologist, we, we study uh, how these uh, algorithms are biased all the time. And, um, you know, without having, you know, and, and there is a thought that, you know, if you don't have a diversity of programmers, um, you know, that a programming AI, then, you know, you just have people who are one uh, kind of persuasion programming. There's going to be blind spots. Exactly. Yep. So, uh, you know, diversity is really important and, and data is really important. I mean, I don't think I have to tell anybody that data is important, 
but in some of the work that I do, I, I try to teach regulators when we look at the data underlying a model, we have to interrogate it to make sure there are no inherent biases in the data. Mm-hmm. Because you could take an algorithm that, and two, two companies could take the same algorithm and program it against uh, two different populations of people and produce really different results. And regulators, you know, they get really concerned when, you know, two companies can produce a wildly different premium for the same kind of risk. And so, um, you know, interrogating the data, making sure it's unbiased, uh, making sure the algorithms have been generalized enough so that they can apply more broadly, um, you know, in, in application. So, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and I also think it's really important that people learn how to explain their methodologies regulators. I mean, they, actuaries are always accused of not being, um, uh, of, of not having a facility to really communicate in simple terms. This is really a skill that actuaries are going to have to develop um, going forward because future generations are going to demand simplicity of course. in explanation. Yes. And I think I put in the article um, that, you know, uh, Relating to people, Gen Z, they they want you to keep it simple, you know. So yep. I think this and is and they want it now. That, they don't want to read twenty five paragraphs. They want yeah. you to get to the point. It, get to the point. So, yep. um, I mean, communication is going to be everything. Um, because again, we're not sitting face to face with people any anymore. Right. We're looking at them through a black mirror. You know, sometimes we can see their faces, sometimes not. Um, but, you know, really, they they don't want to have in-person relationships where, you know, you, you know, when you're sitting with someone in in person, I mean, you can read their body language. There's, there's a lot of, you know, uh, nonverbal cues that can, uh, you know, help you figure out whether or not they're understanding what you're talking about. Uh, that's not really that possible um, through black mirror devices. And so... That's why whenever I lecture on this stuff or give presentations, I, I always use this phrase "black mirror" because we all have one. <laughs> you know, we can't seem to live without these um, devices. So, yeah. uh, and that's where that's where more of the psychology is coming in. So it's not just behavioral economics. We need to look beyond the psychology of behavioral economics and look much at much broader. Um, human psychology uh, theories to, to engage people. And you know what's great about this is you're opening up everybody's brains to a different way of thinking because you know how it is. I mean, you know people, even probably yourself sometimes, you get stuck doing whatever it is you're doing at that moment and you just continue. Like you almost like, I don't want to say rut because that has a negative connotation, but you just, you got a lot of work to get done. And so you just continue to do things the way that you are. And I love what you're saying here, which is you've got to, you've got to take a look from a different lens. In this case, I love the, I love the, the word black mirror because I'm, I got my black mirror out right now. I'm looking, I've got my laptop open. I've got an extra screen. I've got my iPhone sitting right here. My kids are staring at their phones all day long. You know, you walk down the street, I almost have to, I have to be aware of other people walking because they're not aware because they're staring at the phones. And that's just our society. But 
the sooner we take a step back from whatever it is we're doing and we start to sort of, like you said, t- engage with that and, and make it part of the way we think, that changes the dynamic and it changes the way we look at, at the world and can give us a distinct advantage as, 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 as time goes on and as this becomes not just something but the thing. And I think, I think the, the words that you're saying, and again, the article, if you haven't read her editorial, it's the Actuary Magazine. It's the December-January issue called, the, the editorial is called Insurance Psychology 101. It's a really, really good read. And uh, this is a very, very uh, important thing that we're trying to get out to the public because you know, you can listen to this and go, okay, yeah, that's not for me. Okay, great. Well, the people that are going to take this in and start to sort of address the psychology behind what we're trying to do, they have a distinct advantage. And what is true about the insurance industry, especially at the producer level, sales level, uh, agency level, it's competitive and everyone's looking for an advantage. So, uh, Dorothy, I think this is great stuff. All right, last question. I've got two, one, you know, my final question that I'll get to, everyone knows that I'm, that I'm going to hit you with that. But last question, um, you mentioned something, you said connecting in a physical way through technology. Well, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, what I mean is that um, we're, we're becoming, I, I talk about this all the time. And what I say is we're becoming more connected through technology and more disconnected interpersonally, mm-hmm. we're losing um, these interpersonal skills, and it's, and we don't have time, you know. And you know, uh, millennials, the first generation born digital. Now you've got Gen Z behind. They don't communicate that way. I teach a class at the university, and I'm always amazed that when I look at my students and they're um, they're reading through the lecture notes on their their device. You know, me, I'm so old school. Like I would want to print out the notes and write in the margins and yeah. they just do things differently, <laughs> completely differently. Um, but so one true. other thing I want to say is that in the April, May issue of the actuary, I wrote an article called welcome to media psychology. Okay. So if you don't know what media psychology is, that's uh, a really first level primer. And that's um, from last April, May. From 2019. Yeah, well, okay, perfect. Well, and here's what I would do if if uh, if you're not able to if you're listening to this podcast driving in your car and you want to figure out what this is, like I said, we'll put the insurance psychology or the or the insurance psychology 101 link will be in the the words for this podcast. But but the best way to get it is just just go follow Dorothy on LinkedIn and look down at all the stuff that she has in there. And it's it's Dorothy L Andrews. And I, at this point. I think the L stands for lots of great information. Is that right? Is that what the L is for? <laughs> so, uh, all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna end this. Uh, actually, before I before I ask the last question, is that the best way to connect with you, Dorothy? Is it through LinkedIn and uh, all the stuff you have going on LinkedIn? Great, great information. Lots of great information. Yeah. The L. Um, is that the best way for people to get a hold of you? Yeah, LinkedIn is great. Um, you know, I try to post a lot of my activities on LinkedIn. Um, you know, my I think the URL for my company website is out there too. And what is that? So say that so people can hear you say, what is the URL for your your website? 
Uh, it's really easy. It's the actuarialconsortium.com. Is it consortium or is it consortium? Because I always say consortium. I like to say it. It sounds, maybe it's more European the way I say it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a New Yorker. So. <laughs> All right. So, so I'm going to ask the last question. So this next part, Dylan is going to record uh, and we're going to put it in time capsule and we're going to bury it. And someone's going to dig it up and in, in a day, in a month, in a year, in two years, how, whenever they dig it up. What is Dorothy L. Andrews, one big piece of advice for the insurance industry? Well, again, I think it's finding the right psychology to connect with your insurers or with, with consumers. And when you connect with them, make sure you keep it simple. They like product designs that are simple, easy to understand, and that you know they can really make sense of on the back of an envelope. So you need good psychology and you need insurance products simplicity. I love it. I love that so much. Dorothy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll keep, I'll keep following you and bugging you on LinkedIn and it's such great information. Uh, thanks to all of our listeners out there. We had an incredible year last year in 19 and we are looking to quadruple our listenership. So make sure you're following me, Rick Fox at, uh, on LinkedIn that to find out about this, about when the podcasts are going to come out and subscribe to those. If you do see my link on LinkedIn when I put one of the podcasts up, please share that with you, your universes. That's how we'll tell two friends and so on and so on. And thanks again for all of the great feedback I'm getting, ideas for guests. It's been great. Dorothy, one more time, thank you so much for being on with us. We really appreciate you. you. And we'll talk to You're everybody welcome. next week. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.